Hi there, hope you're bearing up okay during these extraordinary times. My name's Simon Bendel. I'm an historian working in Edinburgh. Welcome to Intrepid Scots. This podcast is a talk I gave a few days before lockdown about an extraordinary man, William Spears Bruce, the so-called forgotten polar hero. Bruce knew more than most about isolation, surviving more than a dozen hair-raising journeys to the North and South Poles in the early 20th century. I delivered this talk at the wonderful Patrick Geddes Centre in Edinburgh's Old Town at the invitation of the Centre's learning officer, Russell Clegg. Now seems a good time to recall the life of one of Scotland's great explorers, whose vision and bravery can serve as an inspiration to us all. Evening, everyone, and again, thanks for coming out this evening on this windy night. Um, and thanks to Russell for that rather grand introduction. Uh, and for the invitation to speak here tonight in this lovely, beautiful and fascinating old building about this lovely, beautifully bearded and fascinating individual. So, of course, this is William Spears Bruce. He's the so-called forgotten polar hero. He was a bold and he was an ambitious explorer. He was a dedicated and he was an original scientist. He's a man, as Russell said, with very strong links to Riddle's Court. And he's an individual who, on a bad day, could be so stubborn and argumentative that William Gordon Byrne Murdoch, an artist and a friend of William Spears Bruce, called him as prickly as the Scottish thistle itself. So this was a time, there was a time, rather, when uh, William Spears Bruce was a household name here in Scotland. He organised and he led the first and only Scottish National Antarctic Expedition between 1902 and 1904. He established the first permanent weather station in Antarctica, which is still going strong and helping us today understand climate change. He took part in more than a dozen journeys of exploration to both the Arctic and the Antarctic and discovered no fewer than 200 new species. But even by the time Bruce died in Liberton Cottage Hospital, here in Edinburgh, obviously, in 1921, even by then he was nearly a forgotten man. Um, so his achievements were overshadowed by more colourful characters from the, from the heroic age of polar exploration. So obviously people like Captain Scott, Ernest Shackleton, Amundsen, uh, Nansen and so on. So Bruce wasn't born in Scotland actually, he was born in London. In August 1867, he's the fourth of eight children, six girls and two, uh, and two boys. He's born to a Welsh mum called Mary Lloyd and a Scottish dad. His dad was called Dr Samuel Bruce, who was from Edinburgh, and ran a successful medical practice in Knightsbridge in West London. So basically, he was you know, living the high life down there. William Spears Bruce grew up in genteel comfort, surrounded by servants in a, in a few swanky homes in West London, so in Kensington and Holland Park and places like that. His grandfather was called William, William Bruce, Reverend William Bruce. He's from Glasgow, and he lived with a family down in London. And the old boy used to regularly take his young grandson to a brand new spanky museum up the road, the Natural History Museum. And that's almost certainly what first sparked William Spears' interest in science. Despite his interest in science, William Spears Bruce did not shine at school. He went to a boarding school in Norfolk, and it took him three attempts to pass the entrance exam to get into University College London to study medicine. But Bruce never studied medicine in the end in London because as a preliminary to, the medical, uh, to you know, continuing his medical studies, basically the idea was to follow in his father's footsteps. But as a preliminary to that, his dad arranged for him to attend two summer schools up here in Edinburgh. And these courses were organised by uh, a man that many of you will no doubt be familiar with, the brilliant Patrick Geddes. 
And that summer, in Patrick Geddes's circle, was to radically change William Spears Bruce's life. Obviously, Patrick Geddes was a hugely inspirational figure to many people in Edinburgh at this time. He was a clever and a charismatic polymath, and he believed that education could be a catalyst for social change and active citizenship. So throughout his life, he was constantly exploring new ways to learn, and he came to develop this educational philosophy which emphasised a combination of the, of the heart, the hand and the head. In other words, by learning by doing and feeling, as well as by thinking. And that philosophy was summed up by his motto. Uh, being a good Victorian, he had a, he had a good Latin motto, and his uh, motto was Vivendo Discimus, by living we learn. And you would have seen that Latin motto as you came in today, when you came through the, the, the central pend, as Russell said, this was used as, as a student hall's residence. So Patrick Geddes did it up in the late 1800s. So Geddes also arranged for students at the summer school to attend, including William Spears Bruce, to attend, um, to study rather, a recently established uh, Scottish Marine Station at Granton. And this was a floating laboratory. It was moored in an old flooded quarry near the shore. And it was in a converted 84-foot canal boat, which people called the Ark. Uh, so it was an odd environment, really, but an extremely productive environment, and it suited William Spears Bruce down to the ground. While at Granton, he became fascinated by the science of oceanography. He was also inspired by Patrick Geddes's fervent Scottish nationalism, and he wholeheartedly embraced Patrick Geddes's multidisciplinary approach to science and study, and he went on to excel in not just oceanography, but meteorology, uh, botany, zoology, cartography, and more. This is a student's journal from 1891, a kind of roll call of, of residents, student residents of Riddles Court. And uh, William Spears Bruce is up there, number one. So the, the Ark, incidentally, this floating laboratory, was established, uh, had been established by the pioneering marine biologist Sir John Murray, who took part in that groundbreaking Challenger expedition in the 1870s. So that was the first great voyage of uh, discovery in terms of the oceans. The Challenger zigzagged across the globe. It covered 70,000 nautical miles, discovered more than 4,000 previously unknown species. When Bruce came here in the late 1880s, countless specimens brought home on the Challenger were still being examined and catalogued. And much of that work was going on at the Ark. So um, Bruce basically loved working out at the Ark. Uh, he worked as a laboratory assistant and he loved it so much that by the end of that summer, he'd completely abandoned his plans to study medicine at UCL, and instead he'd secured a place at Edinburgh University to study medicine here. At university, he proved to be a very serious and a sober student. Whenever he got his break, uh, break from his university studies, he would be back out at Granton, helping with Murray's great project. Hugh Robert Mill, who was a lecturer at the summer school, described Bruce at this time as a shy, gentle fellow with uh, appealing eyes always ready to do a kindness to everyone. His love of nature was unusually strong. He was an ideal naturalist, quite unspecialised, and equally interested in every phenomenon and form of life, a perfect type of born naturalist. So it was Hugh, uh, Robert Mill who recommended Bruce for the position of a medic and a naturalist on the Dundee whaling expedition to Antarctica. So this set off in 1892. Bruce was actually close to finishing his med medical degree by this point, but he nevertheless jumped at the chance to go to the Antarctic and he quit university. And he sailed south, there was a little small convoy of ships and they went in September of that year. And this expedition primarily was a commercial one. It was searching for right whales, which had been said to have been in that area. And they were in high demand at this time because of their blubber, but also for their 
baleen plates. So these baleen plates with these flexible filters in their jaws, they could be up to three meters long and they kind of act as a sieve uh, for, the, for the whale. I think they're made from the same stuff as our fingernails, something like that, anyway. Anyway, they were used at the time for corsets and umbrellas. Uh, they have hundreds of these plates in their mouths and at that time, baleen from a single right whale could fetch about 3,000 pounds. You're talking about a quarter of a million pounds at the time, uh, now in today's money. But Bruce also went along with science in mind, and he hoped that, it, that would, this expedition would give him the chance to put into practice uh, the skills that he'd learned at Granton, basically. Um, however, little of scientific value was achieved at that expedition. Uh, the captain showed really no interest in science at all, and nor did they find any whales, or right whales. So um, in order to cut the expedition's losses, uh, the captain ordered a mass slaughter of seals to, to collect skins and, and oil and blubber to be sold back home. Um, so despite the fact that William Spears Bruce was on board as a medic and a scientist, he was expected to take part in this mass killing uh, of the animals on the ice pack. So I think it was something like 5,000 seals were killed. Uh, and he was absolutely appalled. And he um, later described this butchery as a miserable show. But despite that experience, he, going down to Antarctica had a, had a profound effect on young William Spears Bruce it kind of glimpsed this beautiful icy world uh, of untapped, you know, untapped potential, unlimited scientific potential. And back in Scotland, he declared himself ravenous to return to the south. But first he had to earn some money. So he applied for, and he got, he got, he got the, a job at, at a small meteorological um, observatory at the summit of Ben Nevis. So obviously that's four and a half thousand feet above sea level. And the job up there was to collect uh, weather recordings, basically, and they, those would be recorded, um, sort of compared with recordings taken down at, at sea level down near Fort William. He hoped that that experience up there on Ben Nevis was going to equip him with the skills that would be useful when he finally got his chance to go back to Antarctica, and he wasn't disappointed. So uh, at the summit of Ben Nevis, he learned basically the discipline of taking regular recordings with scientific instruments in sub-zero uh, temperatures, uh, he, found, he regularly found himself snowed in. He'd have to sort of dig snow tunnels to get out of his hut. And he would go off and read thermom uh, thermometers and rain and snow gauges and so on. And he had all this equipment sort of situated uh, around the summit of Ben Nevis. Strong gales, of course, blown all over the place. Uh, and the station was constantly shrouded in, in or continued shrouded in fog and, and mist and so on. So it was tough work. But he was up there um, a year. Um, and enough, well, just up to a year, and then around about that time, he suddenly gets an unexpected telegram from uh, Hugh Robert Mill. Did he fancy joining another expedition, this time to the Arctic? Uh, well, William Spears Bruce basically ran down Ben Nevis. <laughs> and uh, uh, so he joined an expedition called the Jackson Harmsworth Expedition, and that was already in its third year. And the Jackson Harmsworth Expedition, its leader was this uh, remarkable looking fella. <laughs> So this guy is this guy's Frederick George Jackson. He's a big game hunter whose aim wasn't just to do scientific work up there, but uh, uh, also potentially seek a route to the North Pole. But he was also interested in um, shooting as many animals as possible while he was up there. He is supposed to have shot 100 polar bears in the Arctic. I think he's got one of them wearing one, isn't he? Um, uh, and also walruses, seals, foxes, birds. Um, in slight defence, the men ate them because the fresh meat staved off scurvy. So they were all eating these animals. The expedition's financial backer was the newspaper tycoon, Alfred Harmsworth. So he later became Lord Northcliffe, and obviously he's the man who set up the Daily Mail and the Daily Mirror. 
Harmsworth obviously was in it because he was hoping to get a string of exciting um, adventure stories from, from the Arctic in return for his investment. So the focus of this expedition was an archipelago, an ice-bound archipelago called uh, Franz Josef. Uh, and that had been discovered 20 years earlier but hadn't yet been properly mapped. So Bruce was hired as a naturalist on this expedition and he spent a year at the expedition's base at a place called Camp Flora on Northbrook Island, which is the southernmost island of the archipelago. It wasn't ice-bound in the summer. And during that time, he collected all sorts of hundreds of specimens, foxes, birds, seals, even some insects up there. Um, very harsh conditions, obviously. And he brought back an extensive collection of these skins and, and eggs and skeletons and so on. And while he was at Camp Flora, he also met this dramatic, another dramatic-looking individual... Yeah, for a moustache. Uh, so this is Fridjof Nansen, the great Norwegian explorer. And he was returning overland from an unsuccessful attempt to reach the North Pole in his ship, the Fram. By an incredible stroke of luck, Nansen stumbled on Jackson's party amongst thousands of miles of Arctic waste because he heard the British group's dogs barking. But he got on well with Bruce. The two of them got on well. They stayed friends for years. They stayed in touch for years afterwards. Bruce later, later, later said of Nansen, uh, I believe in him so thoroughly, who could help doing so? Um, so anyway, that Jackson Harmsworth expedition, he returns to London in September 1897, but not, not long after, in the spring of 18, uh, 1898, Bruce is offered another opportunity to go back to the Arctic with Andrew Coates in his luxury steam yacht called the Blencathra. So Coates was a member of the, the wealthy Paisley textile family, the Coates um, textile manufacturers, and he was heading off to the um, Spitsbergen archipelago, another frozen archipelago up there, on a hunting and a pleasure cruise. Uh, he travelled as a naturalist, uh, Bruce, on that expedition. He spent the voyage hard at work. He's, he's taking readings of currents, recording sea temperatures, salinity levels. He's gathering surface plankton and all that kind of stuff. And on returning to the north of Norway, he runs into Prince Albert of Monaco, as you do. Uh, and so who'd, who'd have thought it? But Prince Albert of Monaco is a keen oceanographer. Uh, and he's also heading up to Spitsbergen. So he, imp he impresses the prince with his vast knowledge of, of the Arctic and, and, and you know, natural world. So the prince asks, invites him to come back up with him and says, join our ship. And of course, the prince has got a state-of-the-art fancy research ship. Uh, it's called the Princess Alice. So William Spears Bruce is, is uh, you know, keen, to, keen to join and he goes with him. Um, and of course, that was another great experience for him up in the Arctic. So now, William Spears Bruce considers that his apprenticeship as a polar explorer is over, and he feels that he's ready to lead his own expedition. But first, um, rather oddly, for someone who decides he wants to go back to the Poles, he decides to get married. So in 1901, he gets married. He's 34, and his new wife is called Jessie McKenzie. She's a young woman from the Highlands, from Russia. Um, she had 10 brothers, apparently, this woman. Uh, and she was working as a nurse in his dad's surgery down in London. So the couple moved to Joppa. They moved to 17 Joppa Road, and they called their house Antarctica. Um, uh, it's almost inevitably, really. This, wasn't a <coughs> this was not a happy marriage. I think being married to a polar exp explorer, it was never around, and didn't have a regular income, wasn't much fun. And she was obviously felt isolated, unsupported, unhappy. She started drinking heavily. So by 1915, they were estranged. I don't know, people know much about David Livingstone, but the same thing happened to his wife, Mary Livingstone. She was a hopeless alcoholic at the end of her life, and she died at 41. Um, anyway, um, Bruce gets married in 1901, and at that point, he's arguably the most experienced polar scientist in Britain. He's certainly one of the most respected. 
And so it makes sense for him then to offer his services to this grand looking fella. This is Sir Clements Markham, who was the president of the Royal Geographical Society. Sir Clements at this time was in the process of organizing a major British expedition to the Antarctic. And Bruce felt he was ideally placed to play a leading role in that expedition, you know, perhaps the, the leading role. And that expedition became known as the Discovery Expedition. Uh, so in the, in the spring of 1899, he writes to Sir Clements and he offers his services and he sets out his qualifications and his credentials, which of course by this point are considerable. So Sir Clements dashes off a quick note, two sentence acknowledgement, saying no decisions have been made about staff yet, but he would, he'd be glad to meet Bruce if Bruce is in London. But for whatever reason, that meeting never happened. And Bruce was kept then waiting a full year before Sir Clement sent him another message asking him, rather formally, to apply for a position at the expedition. By that point, it was too little too late, and Bruce had, had become frustrated with this lack of interest from Sir Clements. He was also unimpressed that Sir Clements, so Sir Clements was ex-Royal Navy, and he was basically a creature of the establishment. And he was unimpressed that Sir Clements had picked a Royal Navy captain, a man called Robert Falcon Scott, to lead the expedition. And of course, despite the fact that Robert, Robert Scott had absolutely no experience at all of, 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 um, of the Poles. Bruce is also becoming increasingly convinced that science is destined to play second fiddle to uh, imperial adventure on this, on this great expedition. Bruce thinks that Sir Clements is only really interested in planting the Union Jack at the South Pole. So by this time, Bruce has already been given cons uh, serious consideration to organising and leading his own bold expedition. Uh, so this expedition, this alternative voyage, was going to be paid for entirely by patriotic Scots, including his new mega-rich uh, friends, the, the Coates family, James and Andrew Coates. So this was going to fly the saltire and the lion rampant, and the emphasis would be firmly on slow and steady scientific work, not in taking part in some reckless race to the pole. So his idea captures imagination here. Sir John Murray throws his weight behind it. Money starts to come in. Uh, and on the 21st of March 19, 1900, Bruce writes to Sir Clement saying that he is not without hope of being able to raise enough capital to take out a second British ship to explore the Antarctic regions. Three days later, he writes again to Sir Clements and he kind of explains more and he clarifies his position. He says, I consider it important that the work of the Scottish expedition should be complementary to and cooperative with that of the German and British expeditions. So obviously the Germans are going down there too. However, before that second letter reaches Sir Clements, the old boy has got all fired up and he's, and he's, he's written a reply back already. So, uh, so he writes to Bruce, he writes, Dear Mr Bruce, I'm very sorry to hear that an attempt is to be made at Edinburgh to divert funds from the Antarctic expedition in order to get up a rival enterprise. A second ship is not in the least required. I do not understand why this mischievous rivalry should have been started, but I trust you will not connect yourself with it. So Bruce sticks to his guns. He insists that a Scottish expedition would add to uh, a value of a British national expedition. It wouldn't be a rival at all. And it was going to a different part of Antarctica anyway. But um, basically, the chippy letters ping back and forth between the two. Sir Clements does finally call down. And Bruce is eventually offered the position of naturalist on the discovery. He declines. Uh, in February 1901, Sir Clements uh, also sends a conciliatory note to Bruce uh, in which he writes, I'm afraid I replied rather angry, angrily when you announced your expedition to me for I feared that your proceedings would divert funds from the national expedition, which was and is much in need. Uh, 
but I can now see things from your point of view and I wish you success. But by then really, Bruce had earned himself the enmity of the establishment down in London. Rightly or wrongly, he had come to see his shabby treatment at the hands of the London establishment as a kind of microcosm of England, the way England treats Scotland. Meanwhile, plans have been published for this, uh, in the Scottish Geographical magazine. He said he would sail to Antarctica's uh, Weddell Sea, the treacherous Weddell Sea, in August the following year. On receiving £30,000 from, from members of the Coates family, so that's you know, two and a half million pounds now, he gets a further 6500 from different individual uh, societies and individual donors. And with all that money, he buys a, Norway, a Norwegian whaling ship. So that's given a complete overhaul. It's strengthened for ice. Uh, it's fitted with laboratories, dark rooms, dredging material, meteorological equipment, and he renames it the Scotia. Uh, he has a crew of 27 uh, officers and men, and they're recruited from around Scotland mostly, from Dundee and Peterhead and places like that. In addition, he has half a, half a dozen scientists who are brought on board, and he also appoints an official piper to the expedition, a Mr Gilbert Kerr from 241 Causeway Side, Edinburgh. Uh, and this guy would also uh, act as a, a sort of lab assistant as well. So here's a kind of famous picture of Gilbert Kerr <laughs> playing his pipes to a penguin. If you look closely, you can see there's a little rope <laughs> which they've covered with, uh, so, covered with snow so the penguin can't escape. Um, <laughs> uh, so anyway, um, so off they go. The Scotia leaves Troon Harbour and he heads out the Clyde Estuary on the 2nd of November 1902. It's a Sunday. The lion rampant and the saltire are flying from the mastheads. Bruce later writes, while science was the tal talisman of the expedition, Scotland was emblazoned on its flag. Gilbert Kerr played Old Lang Syne on his pipes and the crew sang as the ship sailed out into the main channel and onlookers on the banks of the Clyde were scandalised that Bruce's ship was not only departing on the Sabbath, but profane songs and not holy psalms were issuing from its decks. Uh, from its decks. So anyway, it, off it goes. It goes to Ireland, Madeira, the Cape Verde Islands. Uh, two months later, it stops for supplies in the Falkland Islands. And that's the last port of call before the journey continued south across perhaps the most feared stretch of ocean in the world, the Southern Ocean. So Bruce films moving images in the Antarctica for the film, uh, films the first moving images down there. He gets pictures of icebergs floating by in the choppy seas. I mean, these are miles wide, uh, these icebergs. Um, uh, uh, and then they sail into the Weddell Sea. Temperatures plummet. Um, Bruce had hoped to spend the, the polar summer exploring that sea, but his ship quickly gets surrounded by ice. And the Antarctic winter obviously comes quickly. So that's fast approaching. And there's a danger. They're going to get stuck in the ice and crushed. So the, uh, the ice breaks up a little bit to everyone's intense relief. And as soon as it does, all thoughts of continuing south are abandoned. And instead they turn around. They go north again and they go to the South Orkney Islands. Eventually the Scotia limps into a sheltered bay called uh, Laurie Island, one of, the, one of the South Orkney Islands. A few days later, the bay freezes solid. Uh, Scotia's trapped. So um, here's, a, here's a picture of a trapped in the, um, or iced in. So obviously no one's going anywhere for a long time, you know, six, seven, eight months. Um, so the priority now is to build a shelter. And that would be a place where they could obviously shelter if, that, if the ship, you know, were to, were to be crushed by ice. So they go around the island, they collect 100 tonnes of rocks. Sometimes they have to dig them out of the ice. 
um, and the frozen ground, obviously, and they haul them on sledges. Uh, then they build a dry, stone, uh, a, a dry stone shelter using the same construction techniques that were employed to build the stone observatory at the top of Ben Nevis. Um, it consists of a single room, 14 feet by 14 feet. It's got thick stone walls. They're packed with gravel and sand and snow, which obviously freezes. The walls and the doors are lined with canvas. The floor's made from wood from the ship, the ship's hatches and so on. Uh, the roof um, is, is made of canvas and felt, and it's saturated with oil and grease. And they call this shelter Omond House, after Robert Omond, who established that meteorological station on the top of Ben Nevis. Uh, and there's a little wooden lintel above the door. It's made from oak. And in that oak lintel, they carve a Latin motto, the Latin motto of William Spears, Bruce's great mentor and teacher, Patrick Geddes. So, vivendo discimus, uh, which means through living we learn. So, the, you could sort of say, I don't know, it's a bit carried away, but you can say that Patrick Geddes' ideas have literally reached the ends of the earth. Um, anyway, here's Omond House. And here's a picture of the men planting the saltire on Laurie Island. So, they've got their secure base now, and um, they can concentrate on the scientific work that they've gone there for. So they take hourly measurements of air and sea temperatures and they record the strength and direction of wind, for example. They chart the seas, they map the island's landscape. They, as you can see, they're going about on skis, snowshoes. They um, take samples of seawater, which they study for its color and its salinity, its bacteria content and all that kind of stuff. Um, they dredge the seabed for interesting specimens. And they, and they also study and take the first moving images of Antarctic wildlife, like penguins. Um, and then his men then eat the penguins for dinner, cooked with fried onions and curry sauce, um, again, to ward off scurvy. Uh, so anyway, the, finally, the southern spring arrives. The pack ice, pack ice starts to melt, and Bruce sets sail again, and he leaves behind a small scientific party on the island, and he, he, and he heads to the Falkland Islands to pick up some fresh supplies. And then he travels over to Argentina, where the coal is, he can, get, he can fill up, stock up with coal, much cheaper than getting it in the Falkland Islands. He's greeted warmly in Buenos Aires. Uh, he meets the Argentinian president. He attends a gala banquet and Gilbert Kerr's with him and Gilbert Kerr breaks out the, breaks out the pipes again. Um, uh, he also controversially <coughs> accepts money from the Argentinian government to fund another year of scientific research uh, down on Laurie Island. So when he returns in the Scotia to the South Orkney Islands, he's carrying three Argentinian scientists with him. And to this day, the Argentinian science, uh, scientists are still down there running the weather station on Laurie Island. Um, meanwhile, he's got unfinished business in the Weddell Sea. So in January 1904, they sail off once more. And, you know, this ice-strengthened vessel, it pushes as far south as it can go. It manoeuvres between these big ice, um, icebergs and pack ice and these things called growlers. They're like rolling balls of ice. And, um, and it reaches 74 degrees of latitude and comes upon huge unknown cliffs of ice sitting on previously undiscovered an undiscovered part of the, of the continent. And so William Spears Bruce names this Coatsland after his financial backer, obviously. And then the ship follows those cliffs, very dangerous seas, for 150 miles, surveying the cliffs, basically. And after a week of surveying, the ice closes in again around the Scotia, and the ship looks like it's going to get stuck again. And now this is a similar latitude in the Weddell Sea to where Ernest Shackleton's ship, the Endurance, did get stuck in 1915. And he made that miraculous um, escape where he brought all his men home, despite the fact he didn't have a ship uh, on little boats and so on, and walking across the ice. So there's a real danger now that the Scotia's going to get lost as well. So to keep the spirits up, 
its crew uh, get out on the ice and they attempt to play a game of football, as they do. Edwardians are always like sort of cups of tea and football. Solve anything, won't it? So, uh, so they, have a, they have games of football on the ice. Um, and, uh, and also that's where that quirky photo of Gilbert Cope was taken, playing, playing to the Penguin. I've got to put up again because I like it so much. <laughs> and uh, anyway, then the, and then suddenly the ice cracks. So it loosens up around them, so they get out of there. Uh, open water appears. They crack open champagne bottles and they toast the furthest south. Uh, that's, uh, they've gone. There's a photo to mark that too. Um, and if you look at this photo, look at the flags. It's not just the saltire, it's the Union Jack as well. So he was sort of true to his word about it being complimentary. It's not, it's not supposed to be taking anything away from the British one. Anyway, they turn north again and they're under steam now. And this time they just keep going. So they make a long voyage back to Britain. So they go via Cape Town this time and the Ascension Islands, and they get to Ireland. They reach the Clyde on the 21st of July, 1904, so they've done 33,000 miles. They get a congratulatory telegram from the King, and there's a celebration reception at the Marine Station at Millport. John Murray's there, and he presents uh, Bruce with the gold medal of the Royal Scottish Geographical Society. But the wider reception for the Scotia's expedition is more, you know, it's more muted. William Bruce Bruce gets nothing like the publicity that Captain Scott or Ernest Shackleton get. And soon he finds he's struggling even to raise enough funds just to publish his scientific results. You know, his lack of charisma is probably something to do with it, certainly compared to Shackleton. He could be a shy man and a kind of solitary man and a bit prickly, you know. He was a poor self-publicist and things might have been different if he just bashed out a book, you know, an exciting adventure book as soon as he got home. Instead, he just concentrated on his scientific uh, records. And as I say, yeah, there's that, there's that quote from Bern Murdoch, prickly is the Scottish thistle itself, very quick to take offence. Uh, nevertheless, William Spears Bruce was in absolutely no doubt about who was to blame for this lukewarm reception for his great voyage, and it was Sir Clements Markham and his chums. So as time passes, he gets bitter, really. It becomes increasingly bitter that men that he considers to be reckless adventurers are attracting all this fame and all this funding for further adventures, and his own ambitions serious ambitions to, to have put further polar research they have to be abandoned because he's constantly unable to get enough sponsorship money he later wrote in 1908 the english got the money and the scots got the kicks so he was still smarting many years later he was furious that neither he nor any of his men were awarded the polar medal of the royal geographical society in london despite continually lobbying for it they got the patron's medal but that's not as prestigious as the polar medal that would have had to have been given to them by the king uh, every man on, on the Discovery Expedition of Captain Scott received the Polar Medal, even the ship's stoker. Um, not one on the Scotia was similarly honoured. And that injustice would basically burn with William Spears Bruce inside him for the rest of his life. In 1911, he publishes an account of his expedition, Polar Exploration. But it's, it's seven years after he's back from Laurie Island. By that point, really, he's already fading from the public memory and so is the expedition. So what he does next then, he... He based himself in Edinburgh and he sets up the Scottish Oceanographical Laboratory beside Surgeon's Hall. That was formally opened, he, he gets in his old, old friend Prince Albert and Monaco to open it uh, in 1906. So he's still on the go. Um, and that houses a huge collection of polar, bi uh, you know, biological, zoological, geological specimens, many of which he tries to put on display for visitors. It also serves as his kind of professional base and his office. And Nansen comes to see him there. Amundsen comes to visit him. Shackleton visits him, actually, there as well. 
But it's this perennial lack of money, his inability to secure, to secure funding that eventually forces an, uh, that lab to close in 1919. And his maps, his books, his specimens, they're all scattered, really distributed. So the university gets some, the Royal Geo Scottish Geographical Society gets some, the Royal Scottish Museum, as it was called, gets some. And it's a you know, massive, devastating blow to William Spears Bruce. He returns to the Spitsbergen in the Arctic Circle in 1906-1907. He hopes to discover exploitable reserves of coal and oil shale up there. In 1909, he sets up a, a private mineral prospecting company called the Scottish Spitsbergen Syndicate. And there are further surveying trips to Spitsbergen, 1909-1902. He goes just before war breaks out in 1914. He goes just after the war's broken out, uh, ended rather, in 1919. But he doesn't really find lucrative oil shale uh, or significant mineral deposits that he, he needs to make this venture work. In the end, that syndicate also folds. So he does then attempt to raise a second expedition to Antarctica in 1910 and 1911. And on this expedition, he now proposes to walk across Antarctica. So that he's, he's sort of, you can see he's almost kind of thinking, I need to do something dramatic. But he thinks that's more of scientific value than just going to the pole and back again. Because if you do that, you're just going back and forth in the same... At least, you, you know, you're surveying the whole uh, continent. But he doesn't have Sir Clement's support. He doesn't have a polar medal. He doesn't, doesn't have much financial support. And he's forced to abandon that project as well. And, of course, then it falls to Shackleton to do that in 1914 on his transantarctic expedition. That's the one where uh, his ship gets crushed. He does manage to publish several volumes of his scientific works eventually. In 1907, he also becomes a founding member of the, and the first president of the Scottish Ski Club. He's also a founding member of the Zoological Society of Scotland, and he was involved in setting up the Edinburgh uh, Zoological Gardens in 1911, where Patrick Geddes' daughter was also involved in that. I don't know if I've seen a TV documentary about him, uh, it, uh, it, which Neil Oliver memorably commented that. He, he said, it is strange to think that Edinburgh Zoo was set up by a penguin eater. He is, he is almost certainly the only one of the zoo's founders who knew not only what penguins behaved like in the wild, but what they tasted like in curry sauce. <laughs> um, but he was always a kind of fish out of water, you know, back home in Scotland. And he's plagued by a sense of failure, really. And in 1919, his physical health starts to decline. His mental health is on shaky ground. He suffers a nervous breakdown in 1920. And he's admitted to what they used to call the Hospital for Incurables in Liberton. Um, and I think the hospital, I think for people like Parkinson's and things like that, really. Um, uh, and uh, anyway, he died there a year later. He's only, so he's only 54. The cause of death was given as arteriosclerosis, softening, comma, softening of the brain. So I don't know, some sort of dementia or stroke or early onset dementia or some sort of stroke. I'm not sure exactly. Anyway, he's cremated in Glasgow. And at his request... His ashes are later scattered in the South Atlantic, several years later, in April, April 1923. So kind of the idea was to return, him to return him to the seas he loves. So just in conclusion, just to wrap up, I think it's also worth mentioning that although he's no longer a household name, he's still, I think, uh, I believe, a respected person in scientific circles. Um, he certainly was in the 1950s, because when Vivian Fuchs, Sir Vivian Fuchs and Sir Edmund Hillary finally managed to achieve that goal of walking across Antarctica in 1956... Vivian Fuchs, an Englishman, of course, took the flag of the Scottish um, expedition with him on that epic mark, uh, march. He flew it at the South Pole in recognition of William Spears Bruce's earlier achievements. So there you go. Um, as, as Russell said, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not an academic or anything. I'm just kind of an enthusiastic amateur. Uh, but anyway, that's just my little introduction to William Spears Bruce because I just think he's an interesting guy. Thank you.